history of these five areas of our DNA. Pursuing God, loving the family, growing in generosity, giving our best to the body and living and sharing the gospel. These five areas of our lives are ones that a team here at CCW developed about six years ago and they represent what we believe are the outworkings of God's grace and love in our lives as we grow more in our walk with him. Before we get to the scriptures this morning, I'd like to ask you something. And Pete um, sort of gave a bit of a prelude to this. And, and what does it mean to pursue something? I wonder if you can identify the things that you have pursued in your life. Do they come to your mind quickly? If answers aren't coming quickly, just flick onto that next one, uh, Troy. If answers aren't coming quickly, then here's a couple more questions that might give you a little bit of help. If you were to narrow these things down to the last 12 months and ask over the last year, what evidence would there be about the things you pursue? So if you took your bank card or your credit card statements and you categorised your spending into major groupings, what would they highlight for you? Maybe it's paying off the house, as Pete said. Maybe it's holidays or hobbies or investments, food, kids' school fees, superannuation. What about if you could do the same, but this time you were to add up all the time you'd spent and categorise those things? There are 8,760 hours in a year. And if you were to take out somewhere between a quarter and a third of those for sleep and round it off to about 6,000 hours and you were then to, to take that and to allocate that somehow and if you took out work or study or school, I wonder what the top three or four items might be where we've spent our time. And imagine if there was a way to somehow categorise or rank our thought life our mental energy. What did you spend most of your time thinking about? Did you spend it worrying or planning, praying or hoping? And what was the focus? Was it family? Was it work? Money? Or your future? Through that exercise, are you any closer to having a picture about what it might be that you've been pursuing? And then if you, if you were to look back over the years of your life, would you find that there were times earlier in life when certain things were higher on your pursuit list than at others? Maybe as we've got older, things have dropped off and others have, have moved up. When I was thinking about it for myself during the week, I was examining the different pursuits at different times in my life. And when I was 14, I was introduced to bushwalking in the Victorian high country. And it sparked in me a love for the outdoors. I love just about anything to do with outdoor pursuits and I've spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of mental energy enjoying the outdoors. My first university degree and the first 10 years of my career were dedicated to this. I worked as a teacher, a whitewater rafting guide, a ski instructor and a freelance outdoor instructor. And I think by any unbiased external assessment, people would have said that I pursued those things energetically. 
On Thursday, I went hunting through some photo albums to find a particular photo that I wanted to illustrate for something this morning, and I, and I ended up getting lost in those albums for a couple of hours. There were memories of my childhood, my late teens, and my early married years, all the years before the digital camera seemed to turn up at our place. It was amazing to look back and see what we captured on those, on those old cameras. And it was an object lesson for me in where a lot of my time and money and energy had gone. And the albums, I guess, highlighted my pursuits. I couldn't find the exact photo I was chasing, but I did find what I think was our very first selfie. And this photo was uh, taken on a very basic old little click camera on our honeymoon on a beach in Queensland. And it reminds me of one of the greatest pursuits of my life, in the last 25 years, pursuing my darling wife. And I also found a whole swag of baby photos in the digital collection. And just because Luke's here, I thought I'd share a couple that highlight the start of another journey for me. I love you, my boy. Um, He's shaking his head. And that pursuit, and it's, um, it's one that I've taken seriously, is to be the very best dad that I can be for my kids. I asked the question about what we pursue, not to highlight mine per se, but because today we're talking about pursuing God. And the Bible is clear from its earliest pages to its last that there is a war waged for our attention and the attention of our hearts. And God wants our hearts, but he also knows that our hearts are selfish and that we often pursue selfish things rather than pursuing God. Now, pursuits begin in our hearts. And in Matthew 6, 21, Jesus records, or his words are recorded as this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think this is a very helpful starting point for our discussion today. And there's a critical point to make about this today. And that is that we're not judging anybody for any pursuit. So if you've spent years restoring a beautiful HR Holden or if you have the world's largest collection of wooden dolls, if you've completed every level on your favourite video game, or if you have a cellar full of premium wines, we're not here to judge. But what we know from Scripture is that when we meet Jesus, our heart changes, and our pursuit of various things change with it. And it's more that our pursuits come into clearer focus for us when His Spirit lives in us. He redirects us to pursuing things that have eternal value rather than just short-term earthly value or interest. And so what I want to do this morning is follow, through this, or follow this through in the light of Paul's life. And it would be a good exercise this morning to write down the references, there'll be many, and to spend some time on your own and in your life groups going over these during the week, or even this afternoon. So if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 7, and the end of the chapter, we pick up the story of the execution of Stephen. We read in verse 59 and following these words, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul 
approved of their killing him. So here's the starting point of our journey with Paul this morning. Here he is overseeing the death of the first recorded Christian martyr. And if you turn over to chapter 9, we'll see a little more of Paul's former life. And we read in verse 1 this, Meanwhile, Paul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which was what they were referring to the Jesus followers as, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So let's stop and ask, what was Saul pursuing? He was a religious zealot, he was in power and on his way up through the ranks. He was pursuing the religious status quo, he didn't want the changes he was seeing and he was pursuing the downfall of the early Christian movement. In fact, as Jesus told him, he was in direct opposition to Jesus. Many of us will know what happens next between about verse 3 and 17. Paul is blinded by an encounter with Jesus and he's led to a man named Ananias in Damascus and after spending three days blinded and in prayer, Paul met Ananias and these words are recorded in verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord... That's Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. He has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, he was baptised and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Here we have one of the numerous accounts recorded in Scripture where we encounter, where an encounter with Jesus leads to a complete turnaround in someone's life. Almost immediately, Paul began preaching that Jesus is the Son of God and from then until his death, he pursued God wholeheartedly. Look at the way Paul records himself sorry, records aspects of his life from then on. And we're going to move through a few in reasonably quick succession in 1 timothy 1 12 to 14 he says these words i thank jesus our lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service even though i was once a blasphemer a persecutor and a violent man i was shown mercy because i acted in ignorance and unbelief the grace of our lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's violent, ignorant past is replaced by grace, poured out abundantly, and along with that grace came faith and love that are found only in Jesus. Paul's theology of being a Christian is best summed up as us being in Christ. He uses the phrase in Christ to describe what it means to be a Christian more than any other phrase in his descriptions of, of being a Christian. In Romans 8, 1-4, we read, Therefore, 
there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We see that Paul describes his new life and the life of every believer as being in Christ and having the Holy Spirit in us. Sin is condemned by the sacrifice of Jesus and by His Spirit. We no longer live according to the flesh, but by the Spirit. If we want to put it even more succinctly, we only need to look at Philippians 1.21 and we sang part of this this morning. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It doesn't get much clearer or more succinct. But there's more to uh, learn and to encourage us from other statements of Paul. And I want to look at a few more and the focus changes in these next passages. Paul describes in various places what the response of a Christian is and these are the responses that he's demonstrated in his own life. So in Romans 8, 12 to 17, we read, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live to it. But if you live according to, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, the spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the mis- misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you might live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Paul's life and his teaching testify that the believer in pursuing God is empowered by the Spirit to pursue life by the Spirit rather than life by the flesh. We are in Christ's family as children of God and co-heirs with Christ. We've been adopted and we belong. You belong. And we may very well suffer for this too. He identifies what has become his highest priority in life. More than that, he describes what his life is. And in Philippians 3, 7 to 14, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss, For the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection 
and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul's pursuit of Jesus encompasses every aspect of his life. Everything else is rubbish by comparison. He's prepared to suffer for it too. Keep your finger there if you've got your uh, hard copy Bible and turn over to 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul lists some of his many sufferings. We'll pick it up at verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to this, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in open sea, I've been constantly on the move, I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. I've laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep, I've known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led to sin and I do not inwardly burn? Is that a picture of pursuing God? It's certainly a picture of someone prepared to demonstrate the lengths to which he was prepared to serve Jesus. If you flip back to Philippians 3, pick up at verse 12. Not that I've already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Surely at some stage, Paul was entitled to sit back and say, I've done enough. But he didn't. And he didn't seek comfort or status or power or authority. He simply held fast to the teaching and the experience he received and his personal encounter with Jesus through the Holy Spirit in his life. He was moved to encourage others to do the same. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a beautiful description of the resurrection of Jesus. And at the very end of that chapter, Paul says these words, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And it echoes his thoughts from Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what do we make of this life-changing impact that Jesus had on Saul come Paul? What do we conclude about pursuing God from Paul's example? There are many conclusions that we could draw and I guess that's why we have life groups and I guess that's why we have kitchen tables and take time 
on Sunday to sit together and talk. But there are at least two key themes that we should see at play. Firstly, time and again through Paul's writing, he gives all glory to God and he gives all praise to Jesus for the transformation of his life. He's able to proclaim that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. He understands that he was dead in sin, but made alive by Christ. He's able to say that in God's immense patience, he waited for and saved Paul. And he's able to say in him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Paul gives all glory to God and claims none for himself. In this room, there are many people who can attest to the change in our lives made by the single fact that we encountered Jesus. As a young man, Jesus began a work in me that is continuing today. And I thank him and I give him praise and glory for that. It's nothing that I've done to make my salvation secure. And I wonder if you're sitting here today and you're worried about whether you're pursuing the wrong things. There's an encouragement, isn't there, that it's as simple. We had this during our time of communion. It's as simple as starting today. Has the relationship you were pursuing with someone else maybe failed? Have the investments gone sour? Have the long hours at work cost you important family time? Has the pursuit of food and comfort had a damaging impact on your health? Is your heart unsettled and short on the peace you really desire? Well, the beautiful thing about being in Christ is that the old goes and the new comes. And with the new comes renewed vision, a new hope. And that renewed vision helps us to want to walk and to thank him and to praise him and to love him. And the second thing we see in Paul's words are that they reflect the total alignment of his emotions, his intellect, his passion and his physical exertion. Paul graphically lives out the summary of the law that Jesus gave to all of us. You see, it's impossible to escape the fact that Paul really does love the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his soul and with all his strength and that he loves others as himself. So we see in this one example, this life of Paul, a person whose life is radically transformed by the Spirit of God through an encounter with Jesus. And through that, through that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, we see Paul striving with everything he had to pursue God. Our personal response to this amazing grace of God is naturally to realign all of our energies and all of our resources towards him. It causes an overflow of love to others that is radical and tangible. In our family here, we have people who orient their whole lives to God. They do this as tradespeople and office people, as stay-at-home mums, retirees and students. They live each day to serve God in their current circumstances, 
They take meals to their neighbours. They pick up their friends' kids from school. They devote time to prayer and fasting. They volunteer for mission trips and service opportunities. They prioritise their finances so that they can be generous first and spend on themselves later. They offer hospitality. They disciple those younger in the faith and they share their faith with people who don't know Jesus yet. And we've had several single people and families who have given up their lives here and gone to serve God amongst unreached people groups across the world. You see, when we realise the depth of the love shown to us and come to understand that we were dead in our sins and that Jesus saved us from that, there's little else that a grateful heart will do than to pursue him. And so I think it's right to conclude that it is as God pursues us that we are able in his spirit to pursue him. And that as we do, his spirit leads us towards pursuits that honour him rather than distracting us from him. And in his spirit, and it is his spirit that works to guide us to the pursuit of him. The only pursuits that truly fulfil us. When we met this morning, I was telling the others that there are two things that God has laid on my heart in the last few weeks. One of them um, is this. To live for an audience of one. That my life has only one person in the audience and that's Jesus. Now as a leader in this place you might think that that's a little odd because there's an audience from time to time but God's just been working on my heart saying just live for me just live for me and the other thing that he's done in a beautiful way is to give me these three simple words drink it in and he's been reminding me of his countless blessings that he pours into my life Drink in the relationship with me, that audience of one. Drink in that relationship with Mandy. Take a second longer when you hug her and close your eyes and drink it in. Drink in those moments in the car where your daughter grabs your hand. Just be silent, drink it in. Drink in the sunrise last Sunday while I was walking the dogs and the music's playing and the song was this The resurrected Christ is resurrecting me as the sun was coming up. Drink it in and live for an audience of one. One of my close friends encouraged me this week with the words of a well-known psalm and I'd like to share them with you. And I'd like you to meditate on them and consider what we've been thinking about this morning. If you wouldn't mind closing your eyes for a few moments, I'd like you to do your best to clear your minds. I'm going to read these words and I'd like you to simply absorb them. And in response, ask God to help you to align your thoughts to his. To help you with knowing what to pursue.
be still and know that I am God. Be totally still in the presence of our loving God. Be still. Know that he is God. Know that he raised Jesus from the grave and defeated death. Know that the same resurrection power lives in you by his spirit. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. in that stillness let's pray together Lord Jesus show me what to pursue Lord Jesus show me what to pursue Lord Jesus help me to pursue God to love your family to grow in generosity to give my best to your body to live and share the gospel be still be still Amen well everyone I want to thank you for being with us this morning my hope and my prayer has been that the Lord would speak to each of us and encourage us As I said at the outset, we'd love you to be with us for the next four weeks of this series and to explore what it means for us to really love him and to be his family. Thank you. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, we, we sung this song earlier. We're going to sing it again because it's just, um, it's so right for, for this morning's message. Um, please stand with us. Mm-hmm.